the next 10 years are going to be some of the most dynamic times in this industry. And if you learn a lot about it, you're going to have great opportunities here, elsewhere. There's just so much opportunity to make a difference. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Morris Panner. Morris is the president of Intellirad Medical Systems. Morris Panner served as CEO of Ombra Health, for over a decade until it was acquired recently by Intellirad in 2021. Previously, he built and sold an industry-leading business process software company called OpenAir to NetSuite and once served as the U.S. Embassy Resident Legal Advisor in Bogota, in Colombia, the country. Excited to learn more about that. Morris is a frequent contributor to business, healthcare, and technology publications and earned a bachelor's degree from Yale and a JD from Harvard. Full disclosure, my company, Modality, has been a very happy customer of Ombra Health for years now, and I've been super looking forward to getting to know Morris more and and hear about his journey building such an important company. So Morris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Dan. And thank you for being a customer, first of all. And I love what you're doing with your company and the mission around education and really trying to make that more accessible to people. So hats off, and I, I really love working together. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background. Like me, you're not a radiologist. You're not a physician by training. You have a law degree. You started your career in the Department of Justice, writing policies on narcotics enforcement. What drew you to that? How did you find your way into that world and and kind of what brought us to our pivot to technology and, and startups? Absolutely. So in my life, I had two kind of big aspirations. One was really public service driven. And so I kind of found my way to trying to fight crime and make the world a better place. But I also always sort of really had the entrepreneur bug. And when it came time to sort of make a career path choice, I was sort of confronted with a a choice. A lot of people are. Do I do something more standard and become kind of a more conventional lawyer, which I think I probably could have done? Or was that the time to take a little bit of a flyer and try to do something a little different? And I kind of decided to scratch the entrepreneurial bug and sort of 20 plus years later, I am still deeply immersed in it and and love the community, love what it's doing and have particularly found entrepreneurship and healthcare to be extremely emotionally fulfilling. Where did the startup bug come from? Did you have friends starting companies, your family? I did have friends who did it. I think it was something that I grew up with the idea that you wanted to have social impact. You wanted to create something, leave some kind of legacy, make a difference in the world. And I saw this is a really good path to do that. So tell us a little bit about your first startup. For sure. So ironically, and this is how the world works, my first startup was in radiology. I don't talk a lot about it because it didn't last for very long. But very early on, I tried to do a teleradiology startup. And we had enlisted the physicians and we had enlisted the tech. And where we fell down was the size of the studies grew a lot faster than the wires over which we could transmit them. So we were just a little bit off kilter and that didn't end up working out. But the great irony is that some of those same people who I originally connected with on that failed startup 
were some of the people who ended up having confidence and helped fund Ombra Health. So you can see the world kind of works full circle. And if you are nice to people and you keep them in your life, you never quite know where it will all go. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that. So then what'd you do? So, so you enter radiology, it's too early. This is like the dot-com era. The dot-com era. And so we pivot a little bit because some of the people I was working with were, hey, it turns out that you can send a lot of business data over the wire. So we pivoted over to business software and we were trying to help software companies do a better job keeping track of their project accounting, revenue recognition, and resource management. So that was the company that we ended up doing pretty far away from healthcare, you would think, but oddly enough, was one skip away for me. Got it. And so tell us a little bit about those early days. Did you raise money? You built a team? Did you actually get the product out there? And what was that journey like? Yeah, it's an interesting journey. We ended up raising some money and I kind of came along with the money, interestingly enough. And then we hit a little bit of a wall. It was right around the dot-com bust. And we really ended up having to learn how to run and manage a company on pretty tight resources. We were not 100% sure that we would be able to go out into the markets in a way that we could have. There was a little bit of a swing back. And most cases are like this. There's some initial exuberance, then maybe there's a crash, and then takes a little while for people to realize, hey, we were exuberant for a good reason. It's going to take a little while. So we learned how to manage very, very tightly. And that was extremely positive. Although every positive has some lessons, and it, it probably made me more cautious about spending money than sometimes you should be. So I'm sure you as an entrepreneur have that dilemma all the time. When do I invest for growth? When do I take that big leap? And I got pretty conservative from that early experience and then the number of years recalibrating. I wish you could have been on the call I was on just 30 minutes ago with my head of marketing asking this very question. So uh, yeah, I think that's the age old one. But I imagine learning how to run the business during that lean time served you pretty well. And so, so you're running it lean, but you actually built the team and this is pre-cloud software, right? So this is like installing software or was this, was this fairly cloud? Nope. This was all cloud. So we were early cloud adopters and I've always been enchanted by cloud technology and we wanted to do it on Telerad too. And we just ran into the problem of bandwidth constraints. And there's always that push me, pull you around the progress of technology. Wow. So so you saw the cloud very, very early in your career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have always loved it and have in many ways that I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when it came time to think about, we exited that early company and I worked for what now is kind of Oracle for a couple of years and learned a lot there. But when it came time to do the next uh, iteration, that same group of people who I'd thought about Telerad with, you know, some years before, seven, eight years before, came back and said, hey, now we think the tech exists to do what we wanted to do. We're going to do it a little differently because some other people have done teleradiology. We can provide this set of capabilities that will be kind of the infrastructure of a lot of what people need for cloud radiology, which was still kind of an early term. And I was sold and it was really pretty fun. So I ended up partnering with what was largely a group of doctors at the time and then built out a team, many of whom had come from the group that I'd done the first 
effort with and the second. So these people have been, although I've worked for many different companies, in some ways, I feel like I've worked with the same group of people for many, many years, which is really gratifying and nice. One of the things that I've learned talking with a lot of successful entrepreneurs is that, uh, so I'll, I'll tell the story a little differently. In business school, there was a case and we said, what, what age do you think the average entrepreneur is of a successful startup when they start? What age is the entrepreneur? Everyone raised their hand, you know, having watched the social network, 25, 19, 31. The median age of a successful founder is 41. And I'm not going to age you, but I'm going to guess that's around the time that you started Ombra Health. One of the reasons is because you've had the experience to have deep industry insight, as well as you have the network. And it sounds like you had both of those conditions kind of leading into the Ombra Health story here where you go, all right, cloud's ready and I know how to build a cloud company. I've done it before and I've got the radiology network and you know, we're ready to go. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. And the nice part of that is, and I'm sure you experience this too, I think what draws a lot of people, including in healthcare to entrepreneurship, and in many ways, healthcare, traditionally, it's changing a little bit, but it used to be a very entrepreneurial field, radiology in particular. It still is and was at ground zero, extremely entrepreneurial. That instinct of building teams and developing those emotional connections is extremely fulfilling to people. And so the initial, I was kind of the follow-on. I wouldn't say I founded Ombra Health. It was actually a different company. It was called something different. And it was founded by two radiologists who were doing it as kind of a side gig to their formal gig and then kind of wanted to take it to the next level. And those people are still in my life too. And it's been a great, it's been a really, I have a lot of respect for them. And it's just very fun to be able to have friends and colleagues across different industries, across different capabilities. And we came to respect each other's various contributions to what we were doing. So when it comes time and, and at the time it's Dicom Grid, you meet the founders. What was the initial vision and set of products that you thought you guys could build? So the initial vision, and this I think is a good entrepreneurial lesson, was really oriented to trying to do big deals. I think everybody, when they think about a successful software company in healthcare, somewhere along the line, thinks about Epic. And they sort of say to themselves, Epic is amazing because they are the information backbone of so many big hospitals. We should be targeting really big hospitals to be the information backbone for imaging. And I agree with that. It would be fantastic. But healthcare is a very, very peer-driven ecosystem. You cannot just land at a major health system and say, hey, we think it would be a good idea for you to do this. Maybe some people can, but most of the time you really have to kind of build some credibility. And that's because I'd like to say this about healthcare. In most parts of your life, and you have kids, and we chatted about a little bit about that, if your child comes home and says, I did something bad, and you say, why did you do that? And the answer is because Tommy or Susan did it. You say, you know, don't do something just because someone else does it. In healthcare, that's often the best reason. Why did you do that? Because that's standard of care. Everybody does it that way. And so I followed that. And so one of the things we needed to do was pivot to a much different group of customers and start acquiring the kinds of customers who would give us the credibility to enter into major health systems. And we ended up doing that by virtue of being completely focused on the customer experience and being completely focused on solving a problem completely. 
And as we did those two things, we had people who said, hey, we need this and I am willing to actually risk my reputation to recommend you as something that our health system should use. And I always took that responsibility as I'm sure you do very seriously. It's a very big decision for somebody to say, hey, we want to go with this product because we think it will help. So it sounds like when you first got there, the founders were you know, approaching these big hospital systems, not getting a lot of traction. And you say, hey, you know, maybe there's a different set of initial customer proof points we can do with these different use cases. What were some of those early use cases that you were well suited to, you know, what were those kind of first problems that early wedge in to solve for folks? So the use case was kind of the flipping on its head, the information backbone. We became the information splints where there were cracks in the system, we could come in and fill them. So early on, one of our first customers, I don't know if you've ever seen House Hunters, but one of our early customers had one of his homes in Alaska featured on that program. He was doing teleradiology from Alaska. And it was just not easy for him to mount a kind of cloud-based system in Alaska. And it sounds like a, a little bit off the grid kind of thing. And he was a little bit off the grid, but it ended up being the first step towards penetrating other hospital systems who would say, hey, you're somehow managing to effectively interact with us. What system are you using? And it kind of moved from there. At that point, we would work with many, many kind of unconventional use cases. And then we were very fortunate. Our really big break came when we were very fortunate. The Mayo Clinic had a very active innovation lab and many hospitals do. And the Mayo Clinic, we got an opportunity to meet with a really innovative guy, a doctor there named Jeremy Fries, amazing guy. We were having lunch with him, super busy, interventionalist, needed to get some imaging from another hospital. He listened to the pitch, said, okay, I have a problem. Let's see if your software actually works. We went back. We couldn't believe this. We went back. We mount the software. We, we It's cloud-based. So we go and demonstrate. He gets the imaging. He looks at the imaging, he leaves the room. And I happened to be with one of the early physician founders you had brought for credibility. And I turned to the physician, I said, I guess this is it. It just didn't work. And he said, no, 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 it worked. That person needs you know, intervention immediately. He's changing the whole care plan for that individual. Everything is changing. And that was really how we proved out at a pretty high institutional level that we were valuable and we had an innovative physician who talked about us in a way that was credible in a way that we never could have been just because they lived the experience. Powerful story, you know, live demo always put a little fear in you, but when it works, boy, does it work. Okay, so walk people through this, kind of going back to the initial conversation about, hey, it's hard to land these big hospital systems. So you have a guy, a physician at Mayo saying, powerful person too, sounds like, hey, this is really interesting. I need this now. Does that then turn into a million dollar contract with Mayo overnight? They go, great. This is how we do all our enterprise imaging. How do you kind of build from that initial use case into sort of more capabilities and expand beyond? Yeah. And you obviously have lived this reality. It doesn't turn into a million dollar contract. What it got us was it kind of got us the opportunity to flip another card. And what we needed to do was 
I have a saying that one of the most important parts of entrepreneurship is just staying in the game. And if you stay in the game, you will succeed. Not 100% of the time, but an unbelievably high percentage of the time, because if somebody says this is useful, it probably is. And you and your team have to not quit and continue to press the point forward. It's a very, very much those books that say grit is the defining characteristic of success. In startups, I think that's 100% true. You don't have to be there are some people who do this. So of course there's that elite group that comes up with the iPhone. You know, there's everybody has the example. But most of us are just kind of putting our sweat equity into it, trying to make a difference in a kind of humble way in the world. And so what this got us the opportunity for was a very, very vocal advocate within the system. We ended up getting a small grant to do some more work. That was very, very helpful. We got to get exposed to more people in the system. Ultimately, we did win a big contract, but it didn't happen overnight. And in the process, though, we were given the opportunity to, A, keep going. And then we did raise some money along the way, and these kinds of proof points really mattered. And then we were also able to kind of leverage from there to other physicians who needed this service. And we found ourselves dealing with some of the most powerful people in radiology because they just didn't have a great solution for this outside-in transfer mechanism. They all had PAC systems, they all had EPIC, but they didn't have a great way to do this particular use case. And it turns out this use case ultimately became kind of the use case that ate the other use case because they were getting so much imaging from outside of their institutions that we were then able to turn those into real contracts. But I remember some of what we did was the two largest contracts we have today, one of them started as a $1,000 pilot and the other started out as a $1,000 annual recurring revenue deal. And anybody who took the first lens of you got to be in big contracts would have said, you're never going to be able to be successful one of those contracts today is worth $2 million recurring per year. Another is worth a million dollars recurring per year, but it doesn't happen overnight, but it is so valuable and so important to what happened with our enterprise. And I like to think for healthcare, because think of how much information is flowing through the system based on, on that. It's fantastic. It's a great story, motivating for me personally. You know, I've got a really interesting business opportunity right now. And we're trying to figure out, you know, how much of this do we want to commit to the pilot and prove out the value over time and take a bet on some new technologies that we think we could develop versus, you know, how much we want to charge them. It's a hearing that like, hey, you know, you need to take some risks early on on some of these early pilots, but that you could really grow from that is a, a helpful learning. One of the things, and I think you instantly convey this as well, you obviously are a, one of your attributes, you've probably heard this before, is you have high EQ and a component of that is you convey trust to people. People feel like I'm not crazy to bet on Dan, you know, because they're thinking in their own mind, if I do this, will either A, I look silly or B, when they start thinking about it at scale, will I lose my job or even my professional reputation because this person is not delivering for me? So you are giving them that initial confidence. And then sometimes I would look back at people and say, I understand how important this is for you and you understand how important it is for me. And we're gonna have to proceed a little bit on some mutual trust. 
And that became a big part of how we ended up doing business. And I, I think that it's nerve wracking and doesn't stand up sometimes to the scrutiny of, hey, where's your contractual guarantee? And it was a little bit like, uh, just, you know, kind of look over there for a little while. You know, we're, we're going to get there. We need to kind of move forward here a little bit. And that doesn't always work. And the other thing about this is if you are looking for a 100% hit rate, I don't know where you can get that in the world, but you certainly can't get it here. So there are plenty of stories I can tell of tremendous disappointment where we spent untold hours, time, effort, and really thought we were on the right track and ended up being disappointed. And those were hard, but they were outweighed by the ups of being able to get something across the line. Appreciate that, first of all. So thank you. And kind of getting into some of those challenges, you know, were there any big moments where you thought this isn't going to work or you had, you know, really, really tough, tough challenge that you had to overcome? Yes. There's some tough, tough moments. And one of them, I'm not even sure I can tell the story exactly. So I'll let me give it a shot in the, in the theory of transparency, because I think it's a valuable story. Sometimes bad things happen in IT systems. Uh, data gets lost or systems go down you know, all of a sudden you're in that environment where you've got to scramble to recover something. And that's particularly true in what we do, which is where we're moving clinical data. And there is nothing worse than somehow having a system let somebody down. And we had that case where somebody who was an early adopter, a big early adopter who was taking one of those bets on us said, we experienced a problem and we flew down immediately to a big unnamed state. And we sat with that person and we walked through it all. Our whole team scrambled and we study by study figured out how to kind of recover from that. But there was a good week long period where I think the one that I loved the best was one of my early employees called me up and said, Hey, I just had my first child. Do I need to start looking for another job? Are we going out? <laughs> And uh, we're going to, we're going to power through, but that's the kind of stuff where, you know, you're up all night worrying, not for your job per se, but I, as anything, I was as worried as anything about a making sure the patients were good and B making sure the people we had made commitments to were good and it had a happy ending. But if you'd asked me 72 hours into it, how was I feeling? The answer would have been probably not ready to do this podcast. Yep. Yep. So Things go well, the bet on cloud pays off, the need to move images around increases with the ability to do so at a low cost in a convenient way, which if I'm oversimplifying, let me know, but that kind of seems like the bet is you know big demand for moving images around. And so you decide you're going to sell, you'd raised money throughout, you'd been at this for a long time. Talk us through that process a little bit and, and how did Intellirad come to be the right fit for you all? Yep. So ironically, we didn't decide to sell. I had an ambition of building a large standalone public company. The board had said to me, we're probably not quite up for that journey. I said, well, when we get to the point where you have a decision point, it'll probably be a high class problem. We can work it out. But we never hired a banker. We never put the company on the market. But interestingly, and this is kind of one of those small world stories, I had gone to a class event 
And, you know, class is very important in our industry for lots of reasons. And at that event, I met a private equity investor who I just liked. And he was really nice guy. And I think I can say his name. I don't think he would object to me talking about this story. Good guy, guy named Hector Guinness, partner at one of the firms. And we just started chatting and I said, oh, it's so funny. You know, I don't really know that many Guinnesses, but, you know, in America, you know, he's from the UK and the United States, there's a beer, you know, you've heard of the beer, of course, and that's how I associate it. And he's kind of like, yeah, that's, that was my family kind of thing. And, you know, it was like, well, like not anymore, but, you know, ancient times, that's like, oh, this is crazy. And we just start chatting and then we get into the, what do you do? And he says, hey, I have a child uh, with Down syndrome. And, you know, imaging is super important for that because there's all these connections between various, the way the brain develops and we really need that. And so we sort of spent a lot of time talking about being a dad, how do you use imaging? You know, in this case, it was pretty specific. And I just kind of liked him and thought it was pretty motivating. And he then came back a little bit later and I can't remember whether they had invested in Telerad yet or not and said, hey, you know, we should really chat. And is there a way that we could work together to make this something bigger than than what it is today? And it felt a little bit organic. I mean, at the end of the day, we had a lot of conversations, but, you know, I thought Intellirad was really motivated by a lot of the, the social values that that I cared about and was really, really interested in doing something great. And so the whole process, there was obviously, I could talk a lot about the actual process of, of how that part works. But at the end of the day, I don't think it would have happened if there wasn't some foundation of trust and vision that was shared beyond just a straight financial calculus. And I don't know if it would have worked if we had hired a banker and gone out to the world and said, let's try to sell this. I, I think that truism is that great companies get bought, not sold, and you just need to kind of keep building your company as if you'll hold it forever or you will kind of thing. And we did all those things. And at the end of the day, personally, what was great about it was I felt, A, we're going to be able to make a bigger impact. And I think we have, and Telerad's been great. And then personally, I really got an opportunity to a whole nother level of learning in my career that I, I never thought I would necessarily get. I think classic private equity does not often keep managers from acquired organizations for lots of good reasons. There's a kind of different approach, but they said, Hey, we want to do something slightly different. We'd love you to participate in this. There was kind of no real contract or anything like that. It was just, we'd like you to do it. And if it works out, that'll be amazing. And if it doesn't, we're all adults here. And so for the last, it's now almost been two years, I've had an extraordinary opportunity to get exposed to a whole different scale of organization with fantastic people with a different set of skills. And I'm very grateful for that. And it has not been easy. I think one of the things I had to kind of accept, and they literally, the chair of the company at the time said to me, hey, you think you're talented and you're talented. You've you know done these two companies and blah, blah, blah. But we think we can really make you a much better operator. We really think we have achieved levels of, you know, discipline, rigor that that you haven't done and you're going to learn a lot. Are you open-minded enough to kind of learn new things? And that was a really great opportunity. So 
I consider myself very fortunate that they were willing to take that chance on me as well. That's a really interesting story and takes a lot of humility on your side to be interested in learning and improving and, and scaling. You know, so often people say, I'm the wily innovator and entrepreneur and I can't have a boss and I can't think about these new things. And so I'm just going to take it and ride. And it sounds like you've rose to the challenge a little bit and said, well, you know, I do want to learn how to operate a different type of business at a different type of scale. And I wonder if that ties a little bit into the motivation you mentioned earlier, where you said, hey, I do have ambition to run a public company. And Tellerad is certainly a company that, you know, it's not public now, but it's certainly getting to the scale where maybe being a public company makes some sense for it. I don't know if some of it comes from that motivation or or, or what. I hadn't thought of it that way. So I guess the easy answer is that's not how I thought about it. But I think what I did think about was one of the things I think is important is if you kind of decide, hey, I know it all, that's really boring, A, and B, it's not true. So this was just a chance to push out of my comfort zone. And I think it would have been harder to do if I didn't kind of fundamentally think all the people were aligned with the right values. And I wanted them to be successful. Like I, one thing, by the way, when you sell your company, it is probably the biggest part of your resume because now the people who bought your company have made an incredible bet in their own personal careers, their own corporate careers. And I feel deeply responsible to deliver for them too. So it's a yet another constituency where I really want them to be successful. And I actually took the view of, hey, join the company. If I'm not the right fit, I get it. And I want you to be successful. I'm really grateful that you're going to take good care of my company and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. But if I'm not the right person to do that, hey, I get it. But if I could learn more about how to function at scale, because by the way, what they're right about, when you're an entrepreneur, you get your company and you may feel this yourself now. There are certain points where you get to and you're kind of like, I'm feeling a little blocked here, right? I mean, you always have those moments. And I think seeing how people have kind of unblocked those, you know, taken down those barriers and blasted through to, you know, new levels of growth and new levels of scale, because some of the things that you do, and I'm not saying Intellirad does everything right by any stretch, they have things to learn too. It's all a learning journey for everybody, but, you know, things that work really well when you're at a 50 person company or even a 150 person company where you can almost sort of be in touch with everybody don't scale as well when you're in a larger organization. So to learn how to leverage that. How many people is that now in your organization? We're probably close to a thousand. Yeah. You can't know a thousand people personally and what they're working on all, all day. No, and it's global. So there are people in the UK. And by the way, during our time, my time here, we have acquired other companies. And I remember having a conversation with one of the founders and he said to me exactly what you said. He said, hey, listen, I'm a great entrepreneur. I don't want to hear this. I know what I'm doing. I just can't. I, I'm out. He said, I don't even know why you're here. And I said, well, I think I got stuff to learn. He's like, I, I kind of know it and I'm good. And I'm like, great. I don't have any basis to think you're wrong. You did a great job and congratulations. But I was like, I'm really intellectually curious about this next step, but I respect your choice as well. So it it's not for everybody. And but I feel, as I say, I've been super grateful that I got the chance. So you start over 20 years ago now, you see cloud, you see enterprise imaging, you're now sitting atop 
my perspective, the most important or one of the most important sort of combined offerings in PACS and cloud imaging between Intellirad and Umbra. What's like a unique new use case that you maybe can do now that we couldn't do 25 years ago and all the technology and work and all these things are kind of coming together in a cool way? Well, first of all, thank you for that. And we will quote you on that. Uh, well, so because- I should say... Go ahead. I should say before starting this company, I worked at ProScan Imaging and I helped them think through at the time they had their own homegrown risk. They didn't have enterprise image exchange. They didn't have a work list tool. And I came together and our recommendation was Intellared plus Clario plus Ombra. And that was when they were three distinct companies. <laughs> that was our recommendation. And so here we go. <laughs> so... Two things from that. A, thank you. And that's very wise. But B, you may have a career in private equity because that's exactly how people are uh, thinking about combos of companies. So you you may want to think about that one. What I love about this is I think we're at the beginning of the explosion in use cases. This is one of the most dynamic parts of technology. And here's why. Because you asked that question of what could you do now that you couldn't do 20 years ago? You can cure cancer now in a way that you couldn't 20 years ago. And some of the reasons for that is you're able to, A, there's immunotherapy, but B, the way they use data to come up with new combinations and new permutations is unbelievable. And so to be able to take high-end imaging, combine it with patient outputs, to combine it with pathology, to take these data types and merge them together is something that if you had asked the average oncologist 20 years ago, what would be Nirvana for you? She would have said that. And now we can do it and we are doing it, you know, in such a rudimentary way that we really have massive vistas in front of us. And it's a little bit of a cliche, so I hate to use the two letters of AI, but any kind of computational edge that you can get to analyze data more rapidly accelerates how you think about problems. And we are going to take that information. We're going to take these very liquid systems. One of the things I love about what we're doing is cloud makes data liquid is you're going to be able to give everybody, if Morris has cancer, he is going to have a better shot because of what we are doing right now. And every year it's going to get better and better. I'll give you another quick example, which I read about this morning. It kind of took my breath away new study about uh, access to stroke care. Stroke should be almost a completely non-event condition. I know that sounds kind of crazy because it's really scary and really profound, but if you get to it fast enough, the levels of intervention we have, the drugs we have, the therapies we have, we should be able to, if we had the right people at the right time, ameliorate almost all the bad outcomes. Physicians might differ with me, but So much of what happens now is that old saying of time is brain. So it just takes longer than it should. And if you could have truly liquid data and truly liquid access to talent for care, you could help so many more people. So maybe I exaggerate a little bit, but the point is really is there, which is what could we do now that we couldn't do 20 years ago? It's unbelievable. So when people join the company, one of the things I say to them is, I hope you have a great career. I hope every day here is better than the day before. And if you decide to leave, you know, I hope you just keep going and have a great time. But I will tell you the area that you are immersing yourself in is probably, I can't foretell the future any better than anybody else, 
But if I had to guess, I would say the next 10 years for sure are going to be some of the most dynamic times in this industry. And if you learn a lot about it, you're going to have great opportunities here, elsewhere. There's just so much opportunity to make a difference. So much there. I think the part that was the most helpful to hear is this abundance mindset, this positive vision. I don't think people in radiology are having a positive enough vision right now as it pertains to the role technology can play. And I, you know, it's helpful to hear your story in the sort of, it sounds like more of the middle. You're not at the end of this journey. And it started with what are the building blocks to even enable cloud computing? Now that's here. Okay, what what can we layer on top of this? Now we've got a lot of data. How can we move the data around to have an even bigger impact to help more people? And the business of radiology is hard. It's maybe not always been hard, but it's certainly hard right now. And so when business is hard, it can be a little challenging to think beyond the day-to-day. And so, I don't know, I, I think more of this positive forecasting on sort of the future can be really helpful for folks to hear. No, I appreciate that. And I do feel that. And I also feel that it is hard. The pressures on physicians have never been greater. And we are in that odd middle ground where some of the benefits are not yet accruing. There's a lot of fear about, hey, will this eat my job? Is this even a career anymore? And like all technology innovations, my prediction is that it makes the job better, more interesting, more high powered, because you're going to be able to do more. Life will get better. And you kind of have to lean into that. And I'm a huge proponent of exponential curves for good and bad. Like if you have something that's not working right and it's going to keep going progressively worse, you better deal with it fast because that'll get you. But also for good, which is, I don't even think we're midway. I don't think we're midway. I think we are just a few clicks into that exponential curve when it still just looks like, you know, put a penny on the chessboard every day and double it. And maybe we're a couple of days in and we're going to be seeing the benefits for a long time. I'm sure. Yeah. I I think what's hard to picture is from here to there, because right now, not only do you have so much pressure on the labor cost side, but you also have margin pressure on the reimbursement side. And then there's this feeling I brought up earlier. We bought Clario. Okay, cool. That'll add a, you know, buck a study. And then let's buy Intellirad. That'll add a buck a study. Let's buy Avra. That'll buy a buck a study. And then let's add these algorithms. That's another buck a study. And all of a sudden, all of your margin feels like it's getting eroded by technology without any of the value creation for maybe the physician practices. And how do you help the physician start to think about things from a more expansive you know, opportunity mindset? So I actually have some fun examples because I think what you raise is really important, which is the tremendous margin pressure. You can't just add tech because, hey, this is cool. That's not how it works. I think there's a lot of productivity benefit that you can see. But I also think one of the areas that's going to be interesting is an ongoing dialogue around business model innovation, which is going to happen, I think, both at the federal state level where you're thinking about reimbursements and insurance company levels, but also just instances where you see innovation. And one that I like to talk about, because I think it's just cool, and I don't think I'm revealing any secrets that aren't in public filings is 
there's a fun entrepreneur, Greg Sorensen, who was a professor at Harvard in radiology and then became CEO of Siemens North America out of nowhere. And then I remember he left Siemens. He, I was talking to him in a coffee shop in Cambridge. He was having hot chocolate. I don't think he drinks coffee. And I said, so uh, Greg, what are you going to do? And he said, ah, oh, this new AI thing is for me. I'm a mammographer. I'm an expert on this. I'm going to build AI for mammography, you know, for breast cancer detection. I said, wow, that's cool. How are you going to do that? He said, I'm just going to write it myself. I'm a computer scientist, an MD. I'm a genius. You know, he didn't say that part. I say that. And uh, he just built it and he built a company around it. The company got acquired by Radnet. He joined Radnet. And one of the things they did was they had to come up with a business case for AI. And what's so cool is they kind of looked around the world and they said, hey, insurance doesn't cover AI right now. It's not standard of care. It's that whole thing going back to why do you do it this way? Because somebody else does. But they said, why don't we provide an offering to all the women who come to our facilities and say, hey, we're going to give you outstanding care that is standard of care. But we have this new innovative technology that will give you certain, we think, potential benefits. And if you'd like to do it, we have a fee on top of what your insurance will cover. And you know, you'll get total standard of care, but here's another opportunity for this enhanced service. And he said, we kind of analogized it to the early days of tomosynthesis where that 3D mammo wasn't covered and they had to do something. And all of a sudden there's tremendous uptake and it is a really fun business model of, hey, can we start shifting some of our thinking around how do we get value for AI and bring some commercial stability to it? So the only reason I highlight that one is it's a live example that you can study in, I think, in their public filings where they came out and figured something out. And I think that is not something that radiology has had to do for a while because their business model was so clear. It was a fee per study reimbursement model. And the reimbursements now are just, you sort of feel like you're getting chased, right? It's like the prices keep coming down, the work keeps going up. And so how do you start thinking about innovation in a slightly different frame or maybe even a radically different frame to get benefit from all of the technology that is available to you? And I'm not pretending I have a global solution, but it was awfully fun to chat with somebody who had kind of worked through the problem and had come up with something actionable. Really interesting. I think there's a lot of room in business model innovation here and being able to start pointing to some examples where it's working even at small scale, as you mentioned, exponential curves matter. Um, and by the way, when you hit the tipping point to now a third of all women say that we need this and the doctors are saying you need it, that's when you can maybe start making some better claims to the insurers to get them to pay for it. And over time, it becomes part of the process and that you've got that cold start chicken and the egg problem, you know, so solve a problem that someone's willing to pay for and, and go from there. So this was the most fun Chat, I could do this for hours. I learned a ton. Last question for you, any advice for other, any, we, we hit a bunch of different things, but you know, what, what sort of advice do you have for the entrepreneurs out there? Maybe, maybe focus on the radiologist because you, know, you, you found these radiologists who had a really interesting idea early on. And you know, I was riding in the car, my brother-in-law's radiologist. And so this one's for him. You know, he's like, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of this idea? How do I get started? So what advice do you have for the radiology entrepreneurs? So A, I think they are amazing and they should believe in themselves. So part of being an entrepreneur is just having somebody who will reassure you that you are not crazy, right? Because by definition, you are saying, I have something new in the world and I'm going to do something different. And that's always a tough 
thing. I was actually randomly heard Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga sing to each other about they laughed at us. And it's all the entrepreneurs. It's a kind of odd anthem for entrepreneurs. They go through history of entrepreneurs who would have been laughed at, and yet they are now household names. And then the other part, I think, is if you have a good idea that you want to try, try it, and then have very realistic expectations about the entrepreneurial journey. And the entrepreneurial journey isn't for everybody. There's a lot of ways to participate in it. There's a lot of ways to be around it and help and do different things. Because the actual journey starts with kind of a tough drop because most radiologists are A, really successful people and B, really, really respected. And the moment you become an entrepreneur, you probably are not out of the gate going to be viewed as very successful. And B, you probably will need to kind of take a step back and prove yourself and all the things you took for granted as a, as a high-powered physician kind of go out the window. People will be maybe hear you openly first because of that. But at the end of the day, they're going to really look at the idea, at the value prop, at all these pieces that you really haven't had to do for a long time. And so one of the things that I think is interesting is as you get closer to doing it, you've got to kind of think through a little bit the mindset. Do you have the right support network? And then do you have that willingness to take that journey? Because it is a journey. It's almost that you're going back to to start a little bit. And that's why I say there are a lot of different ways to do it. People join as advisors or they find partners to help and they contribute part of the time. There's a million ways to do it. So I'm not saying you have to kind of jump off and become a full-time entrepreneur. There's a lot of ways to do it. There's a lot of ways to hook up with other people and other organizations. And I think that helps ease the path towards, hey, I feel confident enough about this now that I really want to give it a go. And I met a lot of people who've done it. And I would say, if you kind of approach it in the right way, I've been fortunate in my selection, but they've not necessarily made a killing, but they've really enjoyed the ride and they've really uh, felt very fulfilled by what they were doing. Great advice. Morris Panner, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, and this was such a pleasure. And uh, I really agree with you. I couldn't have had a better hour. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.